Express elevator to hell. Going down. Two. One. Mark. There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. To look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Paris Hilton were both born on the same day. Frank Sinatra was finally cleared of long-standing charges that he had ties to organized crime, allowing him to once again operate a casino in Las Vegas, and Richard Petty pulled off a stunning upset when he went from fifth place to winning in what would become his final victory at the Daytona 500. But if we had a Valentine, it was the weird and the varied lineup of films released in February of 1981. Hi, everyone. I'm Drew McWeeny, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, everybody. I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McWeeny. Hey, before we get started this week, we wanted to, right up front, pay our respects to somebody who we think of as one of the definitive faces and voices of the 80s, a guy who uh, made everything better by being in it, and who I think for both of us is iconic. One of those guys that you think of when you think of this decade in these movies, and that is, of course, the great. Bill Paxton. One of the most uh, iconic, colorful, funny, and and welcome character actors. And of course, most people will remember Bill Paxton from his breakout scene-stealing performance as Hudson in Aliens. I love Hudson dearly, and, and certainly Aliens was a huge one for me. Um, for me personally, though, and we'll talk more about this when we get to this movie, but it was Chet in Weird Science. He, I knew Chet. And my friend's brother was Chet. So when when we saw that movie, it was this insane lightning bolt moment of, holy crap, that's not just close. It's like Bill Paxton was studying him. It was amazing. I fell in love with that guy at that point. What I love is that my kids now know him as the guy who's been killed by the Terminator, the alien, and the Predator, and they love him. They adore Bill Paxton because of that role that he plays where he intersects with so many of the things that they adore. Toshi's a huge John Hughes fan right now, and obviously those three iconic movie monster moments, that's part of what makes him such a legend. He did a lot of uh, a lot of films in the 80s. His three most important, I would say, were uh, Weird Science, Aliens, and then, of course, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, in which he plays one of the most enjoyably evil vampires you'll ever see. I can't wait to talk about that movie as a whole, but yeah, his performance in that movie is delightful. Like He clearly knows that he's able to go anywhere while playing that character because of how big a character it is, and you see him like pushing to see what he can get away with on film. It's the same thing that you saw in Chet. It's the same thing that you saw in Hudson. He was really inventive for a guy that People love to make the joke that you got him confused with Bill Pullman. I never got them confused because Bill Paxton was such a giant personality. I don't see how any movie fan worth their salt would ever get these two men confused. And no offense to Bill Pullman, who's also a great character actor and leading man. But uh, Bill Paxton, he was just one of those faces that every time he popped up, whether it was in like a big budget action film or something like Frailty, which he also directed, a brilliant horror film. It's a real loss for movie fans, and uh, it, it really is a shame that he passed away at 61. He really he deserved a couple more decades that that gentleman did. It's going to be nice every single time we run into him as we proceed through this podcast and we get to the other end of the 80s. It's going to be a delight because that's what it was like every time you ran into him as a film goer. I didn't even realize Fish Heads was such a big part of the 80s for me. It's one of those songs because of Dr. Demento, and I uh, was such a standout little moment of surrealism. Fish heads. 
I knew that song very well, and it was certainly a big part of my 80s experience as well. And it wasn't until many years later that I connected the dots and realized Bill Paxton was behind that. And that's one of the things that makes a guy like Bill Paxton so wonderful when you look at the whole body of work is you don't realize how much texture he added to your overall experience until you look at that big picture. And it's very, very hard to imagine what that decade would have been like without him. Not to belabor the point, but you you go around and talk to filmmakers and actors, you won't find a bad word said about Bill Paxton. By all accounts, he was a gentleman, a sweetheart, a funny man, uh, a, a generous guy. Without getting too maudlin, uh, I'd, I'd like to say that like movies can bring our, our friends back to life, at least temporarily. That's the beauty of what Bill Paxton has done. He's, he may be gone from us, but he'll be immortal, but he will be missed. Well, listen, as we, uh, as we get started this week, I just wanted to do a little bit of uh, housekeeping up front. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Once again, we pulled a boner. Um, in this case, I'm the one that pulled it. Uh, I could not remember for the life of me the name of the book Hellraisers. Uh, when I was talking about it, uh, Hellraisers is the book about the uh, various hard-drinking English actors, uh, and it's the stories of a specific group of them. One of the reasons that I don't feel bad like mentioning this book is it's not gossip in the sense that these guys didn't want these stories told. These guys were the ones who told these stories, and they seem to take a great deal of pride in the most insane ones. So it doesn't feel like you're speaking out of school when you tell a story about a Richard Burton or an Oliver Reed. Uh, I got it a little wrong last time. I mentioned that it was uh, Mike Todd who called home. It was Eddie Fisher. So thank you guys for pointing that out. And the name of the book is Hellraisers. We'll put a link up to it uh, so that you guys can buy it uh, from Amazon if you're interested. It's a really fun book. Also, and this is a much bigger boner, and I am really embarrassed by this particular boner. We forgot to talk about the theatrical re-release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the special edition. When we saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind... For the first time, we wanted more. Now, there is more. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the special edition, rated PG. Check newspapers for local listings. I do want to talk about movie re-releases because it was part of our pop culture diet at that point in a much more pronounced way. When stuff came back out to theaters, it wasn't like one or two theaters or played at the Alamo Drafthouse one night. They were like full theatrical releases where they put the posters back out and they did trailers again, and some of the stuff you wouldn't get a chance to see any other place again. In particular, the promise that they were going to show us the inside of the spaceship and that Spielberg had been thinking about the movie, and he had some new ideas. And And I remember what a big deal it was that he was going to revise so many of the things that he had thought about the film. So I saw it as soon as it came out theatrically, uh, the special edition, I know that my take on it was that he completely and utterly ham-fisted his own movie. If ever the phrase less is more had a better example, this is that. I love Close Encounters, but I, that special edition is a really ill-considered re-edit of a film. Columbia Pictures comes to him and says, we want some of that B-roll and we're going to re-release it. We got that B-roll. You know, this is a guy who's made three or four movies at this point. He's not going to have the clout or the interest to be like, no, how dare you? I'm not doing that. I mean, he was dissatisfied when he put it out. It was a thing where he did not quite nail the movie it's like james cameron and the abyss you know when james cameron put the abyss out in theaters if you had read the novel for the abyss before the film came out you realized there was a shitload of that movie that was missing and yeah but name one director who's fine with their movie when it's done nobody well, wants not to a, but <laughs> not to that extent it was the same kind of thing where they really felt like their third act they just didn't finish and i know that that can eat at a filmmaker lucas is the notorious overreaction version of that but i get why he wanted to try. I just wish he could have looked at his film and realized why it didn't need any of it. The special edition is an interesting historical footnote, but I don't know any film fan who considers that the definitive edition. That's clearly a case where the 1977 film is the film and every other version is. And there's this alternate weird thing he did one time. that's like a disco remix. Having said that, 
it is now time to jump into the movies for February of 1981. And it's a pretty diverse list. I would not say it is a good list, but it is a diverse list. And there's a lot of ground to cover. First, we're going to start with a movie that at the time was kind of a big deal. And it's because Robin Cook was sort of the medical world's Michael Crichton. He was hot shit for a moment. Uh, writing heightened science fiction where there's a medical threat or a medical issue. And of course, this movie, Sphinx, has nothing to do with medicine and is complete and utter horseshit. For thousands of years, a part of the world has been a world of its own, where sands conceal the present and pyramids point to the past, to this burial place of kings, to this hiding place of treasures. She has come. I'm an Efter, chief physician and architect for the living God, king of the two lands, to reverently atone for the disturbance of the eternal rest of the king, Tutankhamun. Leslie Ann Down, Frank Langella, Maurice Romay, John Gilgood, Sphinx. Many have died to keep the secret. Many will die to learn it. Uh, Sphinx. That's a movie. Now, what most... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is a movie, yes. What many people may not remember, because they weren't alive at this point in time, is that the late 70s to the, like, 82, I want to say, America and much of the world was gripped in Egypt mania. It was one of those things where for a little while, just everybody lost their damn fool mind about something. And it certainly wasn't the first time around the 30s and the mummy and that whole era of exploration was the first time people went Egypt crazy. But there was a big comeback. And I think it was the King Tut tour that did it. Most people remember that some of the byproducts were Steve Martin's wonderful novelty song, King Tut, and horror films such as 1980s The Awakening and non-horror films like 1981's Sphinx. So thank you, pop culture, for inspiring completely dull and listless movies that are more or less forgotten. It stars Leslie Ann Down as a really inept archaeologist, I want to say. <laughs> You're being very kind. I don't know if I've ever seen an, an adventure-type film where the hero was so frequently in need of rescuing. When Lisa and I watched this film, she was kind of half-watching it. She was doing other things, and she was walking in out of the room, and it was probably an hour in when she said, how many times is she going to scream and make that sound in this film? And then from that point on, it was probably another 140. Yeah, she's constantly put in in jeopardy and does nothing of her own agency to save herself. She's your ostensible hero, and she's not very capable. Well, it's weird because John Byron, we talked about him on the podcast before when we talked about Heartbeat, which is the film he made about the beat poets and Kerouac and, and Cassidy and all that. And that's not a bad movie, and it's pretty well written. I think he must have hated the Robin Cook book that he was adapting here because clearly every story point is thrown away and it's very perfunctory and linear. And even with that being the case, it almost makes no sense how anything unfolds or why I don't get the mystery of any of it. And I remember that Coma was a huge hit. Coma came out in, I I guess it was 78 and the book was out before that and had that compelling cover of all the people hanging on the wires. And it was one of those high concept hook things where everybody went, ooh, coma. And then they could sell your parts. And coma was an example of like a really simple across the middle high concept movie. And that's why Robin Cook was hot shit. This was the follow up that he then sold to a studio. But you got to imagine that at some point, some poor asshole at the studio actually had to read the book before they bought it. The book is this. The book is this dull and this inert and makes this little sense. And the character is that much of a drip. I find it hilarious. Uh, if you're a fan of uh, John Badham's Dracula at all, then you know, you're know you familiar with the Franklin Jella of the late 70s where he was being sold as Franklin Jella fuck machine. Women will lose their minds for Franklin Jella. And this movie is clearly they are casting him for that value. The Franklin Jella. Oh, my value. God bless Frank Langella. He's a very good actor, but when he's in a bad film, (laughs) oh boy. Well, he has zero chemistry with her. He looks like he would rather be doing anything else than being with her. He'd be like treating her as her doctor or something. (laughs) 
<laughs> there is a hilarious scene. We think he's about to seduce her. The music starts to soar, and she turns to him, and she smacks this horse in the ass, and the horse and carriage run away. I'm pretty sure that when John Gilgood exits the movie, you can see him holding his paycheck in his hand. It is bad. He's in literally two scenes. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're a film scholar who's trying to collect the complete works of Sir John Gilgood, makes things like your last stop. In the same year, we got Sphinx, which came and went, and it, it feels like a relic of, like, a 1960-type adventure movie. And then a few months later, we would get Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was an homage to the 30s adventure films. And that, and I think the reason for that is, is very clear, which is the difference between the film brat era of guys like Spielberg, and then this is a film by Franklin J. Schnaffner, who... You know, he came out of live television in the 50s and clearly was very influential. And he had a lot of great ideas for his time. But when I look at the movies that he made, whether it's Planet of the Apes or Papillon or Patton, I'm not a big fan of him as a filmmaker. Franklin Schaffner is one of those guys like like Sidney Fury, who, who did a lot of movies and a handful are damn good. But a whole bunch of them were literally just paychecks. I can't even tell you if they shot it on location because it's that flat and ugly. I don't know if they actually went to Egypt for any of it or if they shot any of this stuff on location. I can't tell. He cannot be less interested in where he is. And it, it does seem to be the kind of a movie that movie geeks would be curious about because it's all but forgotten. And it is a, a, a uh, you know, a fan friendly genre with an interesting cast. I believe it's available still via Warner Archive. And you can rent it on YouTube. You can find it. It's it's out there. All right. We'll say what was the old quote, I think, that in the Leonard Moulton guide, Sphinx stinks. Is that what it said? I think that's what it was. Thank you, Leonard Moulton. Our next film is a movie that I saw several times, heavy rotation on HBO in the early air to mid-80s. It is a sometimes brutal, sometimes very conventional, but generally quite interesting police procedural called... They call it Fort Apache. ABC television calls it shattering. It must be seen. The New York Daily News calls it a knockout, breathlessly exciting. And Vincent Canby, New York Times calls it shocking, entertaining, and very moving. Paul Newman is terrific. Fort Apache, the Bronx. The fuse has been lit. From 20th Century Fox, rated R. This feels to me like the last gasp of them trying to figure out how to marry sort of the social drama television of the 70s where you got guys like Grant Tinker and guys like that working in television trying to tell socially driven stories and then you had exploitation films and this feels like it's trying to marry those things and make something that is gritty and real but it still it still leans heavily on cliche and on things that I think are phony. So it's a weird hybrid. Like there's a lot going on in it. And I can tell that it's trying to be something that I still think they were a few years away from actually starting to make for theaters, which was fairly realistic police procedurals. If you had asked me a week ago, what about what I know about this movie? And I would have said, oh, I remembered it as being like an explosive, uh, brutal. <laughs> it, but it really is, like you said, a series of very conventional cop cliches by the director, Daniel Petrie, who would, after this, would go on to direct Six Pack of all things. So there's your, there's your indication of how, how gritty that this guy was trying to be. Well, and we talked about Resurrection, which Resurrection's a really interesting sort of look at America, and it's got a, an interesting take on the heartland, and you know, Resurrection's not badly made. I think Petrie was one of those guys who, uh, there were a lot of these dudes in the 70s, I think cut from that same cloth as Norman Jewison. Fort Apache, the Bronx, you know, the, the real bonus for them here is that they have Paul Newman watching the system self-destruct around him. And he's a pretty decent bellwether for having a moral compass. He's not a hard ass about things. He'll let things slide, and he knows that people have weaknesses and habits, and, and he's not ridiculous about it. But at the same time, he has enough of a morally calibrated sense of what's right and wrong to know that when his he and his partner see two other cops throw a dude off a roof, eh, that shit's probably not right. They're trying to show the whole range of what cops can be with Newman being the guy that's kind of seeing all of it go by. 
at the time, it was probably deemed a bit more unique and original. It's it's cliche to the 12th degree now, but back then it was probably only cliche to the third degree, you know. How many cop story cliches can you name from this movie? I'll start. Ready? Him and his partner deliver a baby. The girlfriend, she looks like she's gold on the surface, but she's got the secret habit. Internal Affairs is snooping around, and they want Paul Newman to tattle on 30 cops. He's got the hard-ass boss who wants to do the right thing, but he's going about it the wrong way, and Newman's got to set him straight. It's almost comforting how cliche-ridden this movie is, despite the fact that very little in the film is something you have not seen in a, in a cop movie, or more specifically, in a cop show. It's still pretty well made. Rachel Ticketon actually surprises me because I'm, I know her mainly from late 80s films and early 90s films, and I didn't really know that she had given this kind of performance early on. And it's funny, you see people talk about Naomi Harris's work in Moonlight, and Ticketon is playing something here that's, that's kind of walking a very complicated version of that character where she's got an addiction, but she's a professional. She's not a junkie on the street playing it like somebody who's in the throes of an addiction, but somebody who's grappling with a habit while they're also living a life. And it's kind of an interesting piece of work from a very, very young Rachel Ticketon. The the whole cast is good. You know, Ed Asner, even young Ken Wall gives a nice performance as Newman's uh, egotistical partner. Yeah. And he's and he's kind of at first, I think he's down the middle blue, but I think he's learning. He's the guy who's supposed to be learning the right lessons from Newman. I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, oh, that that part was Travolta turned that part down. I bet you're right. I'm sure that in their dreams of dreams, that would have been the guy that they would have cast for it. Um, I really like Pam Greer. It's crazy because Pam Greer looks like she weighs like a bucko, too. She is gaunt in this movie. It is the weirdest Pam Greer. And she's really scary in pretty much every scene she's in in the film. And yet it doesn't go anywhere. What's kind of interesting and kind of disappointing about the movie is that some of these plot threads just kind of end in ironically perfunctory ways, as if to say that's life in the big city. There is no big payoff to the cop killer. There is no big payoff to the. And there's stuff I like, certainly performance wise. I love the scene where Danny Aiello and Paul Newman fight because it looks like a real fight between guys where they're really trying to hurt each other. They're really not professional fighters. They're just dudes who are trying to hurt each other. Yeah. And one thing I loved in that fight sequence, there's one insert shot of Danny Aiello's fist hitting Paul Newman's face. And it's almost done in like slow motion. Petrie only does it once, and it's such a great, weird little moment. This is not a, a graceful fight. This is a brutal fight. Now, this was written by Haywood Gold. Haywood Gold, uh, later in the 80s, was known for his spec script cocktail. This was the thing that kind of put him on the map as a writer. Aside from Newman and a few couple of moments, my favorite thing about Ford Apache the Bronx is it has a few really big, big sequences. There's a, a a riot sequence that is really impressively mounted. I mean, it looks real. And it builds for a while. It's not a quick thing. It goes on and they sustain that sense of something really terrible could happen any moment now. There are some shots of New York City from, I want to say, 1980 that look like a bombed out war zone. And obviously, that's not a beautiful thing to look at. But given that it did exist and that is what the city looked like, it is beautiful to be able to look back at that and kind of have that snapshot of what this part of New York looked like. And thank God it looks a lot nicer now, but it's absolutely fascinating. It's funny how worried they were about that because they have that disclaimer at the beginning that they put on basically because the neighborhoods were so upset with how they were being portrayed in the film that it says there are many neighborhoods in New York that are just fine. And there's a lot of good people that live in these neighborhoods and it's not all shitty. We promise. And it's a great disclaimer. It makes me laugh every single time because it's so over the top. All right. So we're going to move on now to a film starring the great Sigourney Weaver and William Hurt. Drew, what do you got? I find it really hard to believe that Altered States is William Hurt's first film and that this is just film number two for him. He arrived pretty fully formed. He's William Hurt from frame one. Even weirder to me, though, is that this movie is the follow up to the monster mega success breaking away, reuniting screenwriter Steve Tesich and director Peter Yates for a film called Eyewitness. Every day in the United States. 50 people are murdered. Few of the cases are ever solved. Only the best reach the 6 o'clock news. For TV reporter Tony Sokoloff, this man could be the key to her most important story. Or her last. Hello, police. William Hurt. <laughs> 
Sigourney Weaver, Christopher Plummer, Eyewitness, rated R. I find it very easy to believe that that as rumor states, the film was originally um, two screenplays that Peter Yates convinced Steve Tessich to combine into one screenplay. And the result was a movie that feels kind of like four miniature screenplays in one. Clearly, the script that Tessich and, and Yates set up with the studio was The Janitor or The Janitor Saw It or whatever the original title was. Just the idea of a janitor who has a crush on a newscaster and then uses a news story to get close to her. Right, right. But it has these really elaborate subplots. Well, that's the thing. The subplots all are totally different movies. And there's the the one involving James Woods that is its own film to such a degree that it really is distracting every time they they drag back to that. Yeah, there's a, a subplot with James Woods and Pamela Reed, and they're both really good in early performances. Oh, the Pamela but Reed it, story is a whole different thing. I, I almost don't consider her sub, even though I know her subplot is directly connected to James Woods, I consider them totally different. The James Woods subplot is he was in Vietnam with this guy. This guy's fucked up. This guy's never really gotten his legs back under him. He keeps fucking up. He fucked up at this last job. Now he's the guy the cops are looking at, and he kind of wants to protect him. So that's one story. The other story is there's this girl who he's supposed to marry, but he has no interest in marrying because he's obsessed with this other girl. And that feels like a totally different thing. The idea that she and James Woods are connected at all is too much. Pamela Reed thinks she's supposed to marry William Hurt, but William Hurt is infatuated with a news television reporter played by Sigourney Weaver. And Sigourney Weaver is engaged to Christopher Plummer, who is in, yes, a totally different movie in which evidently he is using guilt about the Holocaust to scam money out of people to do something i i'm not a hundred percent sure what chris Plummer's doing but he's creepy and when he's in bikini underwear i'm upset yeah and the movie just keeps going spinning all these plates at once dude and every time he cuts to him it's genuinely a movie i want no part of i don't want to be in the christopher Plummer movie at all and anytime it's there i want to bail out like i said this is the follow-up to breaking away you got to remember and set the table for people who weren't there or don't remember breaking away was fucking huge when it came out and it was one of those hits that everybody embraced and they loved it was like i don't just love breaking away breaking away is my heart now like people love that movie so the idea that these guys got back together and the movie they made was about a janitor who was kind of stalking a newscaster (laughs) what (laughs) also in this film uh the great kenneth mcmillan the awesome morgan freeman and it's not a bad movie per se. Like it's just weirdly overstuffed with subplots and weirdly atonal. I really like the first scene where he, um, where she talks to him on the street and he clearly doesn't know anything and doesn't really even know what she's there to talk about and just wants to be on camera and keeps asking her out. He is awful. He is, he's just a terrible, terrible person and creepy and ridiculous about how creepy he is. And Sigourney Weaver is great in this film. Everything she does, more backstory, but evidently Tessich really was obsessed with a newscaster. And Peter Yates went out of his way to hire her to be the newscast advisor for the film. So she was giving Sigourney Weaver notes while Tessich was basically using that as an opportunity to hang out with the newscaster that he was really obsessed with. So that's creepy. But Sigourney Weaver is so good at playing all the little bits and business of being a newscaster and what she's doing. And there's scenes where she's editing stuff and you get a real sense of life and how the job works and everything that has nothing to do with the movie. And all of that is just actor business where she's doing so well at what she does as an actor. She's so hungry. There's so many good performances in this movie that it makes you wish the movie was better. If the screenplay was the equal of these performances, then we'd have something. But instead, it's just like an odd, misshapen genre curiosity. Drew, our next movie, I would like our listeners to go and look up the original poster, the 1981 poster for a film called The Dogs of War. Christopher Walken will fight anyone's war for a price. Would $100,000 cure cold feet? Tom Berenger's just shooting to kill. Together, these soldiers of fortune are in a blood and guts mission to destroy a hostile dictatorship. They are the dogs of war. Is that not one of the most badass posters you've ever seen? I don't even know what that gun is called with the big cylinder on it. But having Christopher Walken 
pointing that gun. I saw the poster, obviously, in 1981. I remember when the movie was in theaters. Never saw the film. And I saw the film last week. My reaction to the film is as a film right now, and especially as a reaction to John Irvin's work overall, like this was a dude who cranked along on English TV for years and years and then had a huge hit with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which if you've ever seen it, it's the Alec Guinness version that was produced for English television. And it is about little bitty micro observations of very, very slow, tiny, little, minute behaviors. It is microcosmic in terms of the things that are important in it. And that's what's wonderful about it. It's what's great about the book, but it's the opposite of this kind of thing. This was a Frederick Forsyth novel that had been researched uh, with like him actually going into gun markets and stuff and, and doing undercover work. And it's, it was almost written as a journalistic novel where he wanted to talk about like how the arms trade worked at that time and kind of shocked people when it came out. So the adaptation kicked around for a while And it's funny we talked about Norman Jewison because this was supposed to be his movie. He was going to make this and it was going to be this big, important issue picture, which really is not the film that we're talking about. If you go into this movie expecting something like an uncommon valor, this is much more of a character study, I want to say. Yeah, it's a weirdly structured film, too. Yeah. Uh, Walken plays a mercenary who's hired to go to a fictional country and uh, he poses uh, as an ornithologist, a bird expert. And uh, he's captured and beaten. He gets out and then goes back with a team. In many ways, that sounds like, you know, a Rambo movie. No. It it makes sense that he came out of that English tradition of making, because Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is about the little gray men version of the the English spies. Not the guys who are James Bond, but the dudes who are invisible, who worked in offices and blended into the background and who you never were supposed to pay attention to. That's kind of the world that we're running up against here. I really like Colin Blakely as North, uh, the English documentarian, uh, the newscaster who's there in the country trying to get the story. And every time he shoots anything, they destroy the footage and they basically have him restricted to his hotel by the time Chris Walken shows up. But he's the one who sort of fills him in and lets him know what's going on in the country. And there's a real cynical quality to this guy, but at the same time, a frustration that he can't do more and that nobody really is ever going to be changed by the work he's doing. So there's a defeatist quality to this guy. Like he knows it doesn't matter what I shoot. It doesn't matter what I take back. It doesn't matter what news story I put up. I can say this guy's the most genocidal, horrifying lunatic. And Really, it doesn't matter because he's not fucking with anybody's money. For a movie that I thought was going to be a pretty standard war movie, it's actually a pretty insightful analysis of the dirty side of foreign politics and the. You I know, like Ed the, O'Neill, uh, who looks like he's eleven years old in this. Yup, young Tom Berenger, young Joe Beth Williams, and I really like Paul Freeman. Paul it. Freeman, yes, maybe the best in the movie. Who everybody uh, will, of course, remember for later this year, he played uh, a certain bad guy in a certain Indiana Jones film. I, I love Paul Freeman and I've never seen this performance. So for me, this was, that was the gift of the movie was, Oh my God, Paul Freeman's awesome in this. And really unlike commando or predator where you, everybody in that movie is a steroid case and they're gigantic and they're, they look like action figures. Paul Freeman in this movie is playing a guy who I could see being a real ongoing mercenary, a guy who took these jobs, goes in, does them, gets out, goes and spends his money and carefully lives the rest of the time and is very good at it. Like I bought that character from him. It's a really nice performance. Uh, Walken. He is fantastic in this movie. He's skin and bones and just those giant bug eyes. And he's young and pretty still. And then when he takes a beating in this movie, he really takes a goddamn beating. So there's an interesting quality to Chris Walken in this film. We I don't know that I've ever seen him play this kind of character before where all of that abuse he takes then just turns into violence that has to come out. And when the violence finally happens in this movie, John Irvin had shot in war zones. He was a news photographer for real, and he had shot in real war zones. And the action photography at the end of this film is staged in a very strategic, clearly thought out. It's good battle photography. It is clear that he has thought out how battles actually work. And so it's not a long sequence, but it's an intense sequence when it happens. And there's no second unit. That's the thing to remember about the movie is he shot all of it because he wanted to shoot to him. That was the meat of the movie is how do these men, once they get there, perform in combat? He didn't hand it off to some guy to go do, and then he would cut it later. 
he shot that stuff as well. John Irvin, mostly known for action. Later in the decade, he would do Raw Deal with Schwarzenegger. He would do Hamburger Hill, which is an underrated Vietnam war movie, and Next of Kin with Patrick Swayze. With being a film nerd, one of the things that happens is there comes a point where you started to see movies and you started to realize that, oh, I like this or, oh, I don't like this or I'm curious about this. And you start to go through directors and you start to go through types of films. You, you try to break them down by genre and then you try to break them down by subgenre. But then once you start to like get knee deep in movies, you start to realize that one of the easiest ways not accurate, maybe not best, but one of the easiest ways to kind of get movies off your checklist is to go buy a director. Okay, what Joe Dante movies have I not seen? Boom, boom, boom. Now I've seen all Joe Dante's movies, but Steven Spielberg, Michael Ritchie, John Landis, uh, John Carpenter, and, and that's just a real easy way to like absorb or devour all of a director's films. And certainly for me, one of the moments that I found most informative in terms of expanding my vocabulary was when I hit my Truffaut phrase, because Truffaut, not only did I digest him as a filmmaker, but then I also read his work as a film critic and I read his books about Hitchcock and I kind of went back to Hitchcock through that filter and that opened me up to some other things, including my appreciation of De Palma. So Truffaut was a hugely important director for me in my diet as a film nerd in training and I was led to Truffaut by Spielberg, who used him as an actor, of course, in Close Encounters. That was a huge part of what I think made the film brat directors like Spielberg and Dante and Landis so interesting was they did that so nakedly. They played those games where they just put these guys in their movies and and then assumed that you would be interested enough to go figure out who they were and why they were important later. One of those films that I wish I loved more out of Truffaut's filmography is a very important one to him, and it was a huge hit, and it was very uh, influential in terms of awards, but I just I don't warm to it the same way I do to others in his filmography, and the film is The Last Metro. I love the era that it's about, which is the whole uh, French occupation uh, during World War II. Oh, yeah. It's about a, a theater troupe that is trying to maintain some semblance of a normal life uh, during the Blitz. It is uh, alternately uh, poignant and fascinating and sometimes a little dry, a little dry. Yeah. And it's I, uh, part of it is that um, Truffaut is because they are. They are hiding the Jewish uh, director who is married to Catherine Deneuve, and they, they're trying to keep him at the theater and working and not let the Nazis know that he's there. So they've got this whole game that they're playing. So they're playing a role in public. They're also playing roles in their own lives to each other, and they're playing the roles as actors on stage. There's a whole thing that Truffaut is trying to do about theater and artificiality and how theater and cinema bounce off of each other. And I respect all the ideas in this movie. I get why some people really like it. Movies that do this particular thing where the, they play with theater and film and what is real in the edge of the frame and artificial behaviors. And I, there's a point where I kind of check out on that stuff. I like the idea, but I, I get to the point where I want the actual story more of being a director at this point in time and having these things that you're trying to say and realizing that you're going to get killed if they catch you saying them. There is something that, you know, Truffaut was a kid during this era and he has distinct memories of it and um, was around that community. So there were certainly people that he saw who went through some of this. Um, and I think some of those experiences are in this. I respect all those experiences, and how they come out in the film. I think part of it is I'm not a huge Gerard Depardieu fan. Neither am I. But I will say that the beauty of rediscovering something from another country is that they have different cultural touchstones that we do. What might be uh, cliched or rote to a French audience will be somewhat novel and, and unique to us. And, and that's what I like about rediscovering these films is that, you know, while I wouldn't call The Last Metro among Truffaut's best, it, it, there's a real earnest sense of this is what art can do. You know, and I, I really respect that even in lesser films. You know, I, I just the the idea that 
art can arm you against the brutality of the world and fiction and art can protect us from the ugliness of the world somehow. I will say this. I will say that I think my my favorite piece of this film or my favorite thing about this movie is and it's a hard character for any critic to watch, but it is the critic in this who is he's a collaborator. He is absolutely giving people up in order to protect himself in order to advance himself. And uh, it was based on a real critic uh, who was an anti-Semite and published fairly anti-Semitic writings before the war. And then during the war was 100% on board with figuring out who the artists were that had to be flushed out. There is a fury in the way Truffaut writes that character and in the way he eventually treats him because he gets beaten savagely in the film. And I think that there is something very honest about what Truffaut is working out in his feelings about the real person, about the entire idea of collaboration. That, to me, is is maybe the most interesting thing in The Last Metro and kind of harrowing. Might be a good entry point for Truffaut, but I don't know if the Truffaut experts would rank it among his very best. I think that's fair. Now, Drew... As we often like to tell our listeners, one of the more amusing parts of this podcast, we hope, is that we are turning people on to new films that they've never seen or even heard of before. Having said that, the show did it for me with a film called The Bushido Blade. From the land of the Shogun. The Bushido Blade. In the name of the U.S. government, I demand the return of the stolen sword, the Bushido blade. Bushido means beauty, honor, and courage. For us, death sharpens life. The Bushido blade, starring Richard Boone, Sonny Chiba, Frank Converse, Laura Gimser, James Earl Jones, and Toshiro Mifune as the Shogun's commander. In a daring quest for the weapon that would unite two worlds. The Bushido Blade, it cuts to the heart of courage. Toshiro Mifune also appears in an earlier movie that is basically this story, kind of? Like, it's the story device of there's a, a, a ceremonial sword that is a gift for a political figure uh, and a foreign political figure and everybody wants that sword because of what it represents the other Tashir Mufuni movie is called Red Sun it has Charles Bronson in the lead it is a badass exploitation film and it's an action movie with Elaine Delon and it is nothing but fun I love that movie because I knew that movie and because I'm a big fan of his work I had also seen the Bushido Blade and it's a corpse it's man it is a Weird. Yeah, I don't movie. know if this film even played in Philadelphia at all because I had never heard of it until about three months ago. Uh, I thought, oh, okay, I love discovering new things. Nope, not this thing, not the Bushido <laughs> Blade. Um, if nothing else, maybe I can uh, get some of you to go check out Red Sun, which is really kind of awesome and badass. So. Uh, but yeah, don't watch the Bushido Blade ever. Uh, it's also known as the Bloody Bushido Blade. And boy, does it not earn that title at all. Plus, I would avoid any film that says Bloody Bushido. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> so now um, we're moving from one interminable foreign film to another interminable foreign film. Because back in 1981, just being gay was hilarious all by itself. Ladies and gentlemen, gear up for La Cage à Fall Du. They charmed you and surprised you. <coughs> they beguiled you and amazed you. <coughs> now what will they do? Ciao, baby. For an encore. Hugo Tognazzi, Michel Serrault, La Cage au Fall, part two. It means what it did before. And now... It means so much more. Well, this is our first Francis Weber sighting of the podcast. And most of our generation will know Francis Weber or Weber as the director or producer of about 40 films that were made into American remakes by 
Well, and by him, most of the time, like he actually did a lot of them. Well, uh, Disney did a lot of them too. I mean, oh, but yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. This guy, this guy was a machine for that. He was so much of the 80s is a reflection of what his sensibility was in terms of French comedy. The Toy, the Richard Donner film, is a remake of a Francis Weber film. Uh, the Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe became The, the man, man with One him. Red Shoe. Three Fugitives was another one. Yeah, Three Fugitives, and he did both versions of that. He directed and wrote the American version. Three Men and a Baby is his. Um, it, he was such a box office bonanza for... Uh, studios that it's hard to talk about the 80s without thinking of the sort of the influence that he had on comedy both abroad and here what made Lakaja fall kind of stand out was it was a hit as a foreign film even as a kid i remember reading about Lakaja fall because of the dent it made in pop culture at the box office it was a genuine sensation the first one and the first one of course is the birdcage the mike nichols film with uh, robin williams and nathan lane yes which is a very good remake and this is a well it's such a weird setup like cuz okay so the tall blonde man with one black shoe uh which is a spy comedy about like a mistaken spy identity um, that was a pretty frequent gag of his. The Goat was a movie they tried to remake and they finally did as Pure Luck and stuff like that. Like there was a spy thing that he repeatedly did as a, a premise. Somebody gets mixed up with a spy, but they're not a spy, but they get mixed up with spies. He thinks that's hilarious. He also thinks the relationship between the couple from uh, Lakaja Fall or the Birdcage, he thinks that is something that is continually worth exploring as they sort of get older and have to maintain an interest in one another. There's a real version of that movie to be made, a real comedy about feeling like you're not attractive to your partner and you're getting older and are they going to just recast you and uh, forget about you? There's something there that could be very potent and affecting and uh, moving even. Um, this is not that movie, and the spy stuff is so ridiculous and so dumb. Oh, the, the whole gimmick is like there's this microfilm, and like the, the gimmick is that like instead of it being like a suave spy, it's a gay nightclub owner. That's it. That's the whole joke. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, and the first film, what made Lakaja fall so great, and what made it such an easy film to remake so well, is the Birdcage. Is that is a beautiful situation that everybody understands. You're meeting the the parents of the person that your child wants to marry, and you've got to make figure out if your two families can work together and be a family for the sake of these two kids. And that's a huge. There's stress that comes with that, and there's all sorts of comic potential there. Even before you introduce the notion that one set of parents is incredibly conservative and the other set of parents is gay in the late 70s. It's also, I think, of note to observe that this is made in an era where they can't call the cops when they get involved with the spy stuff because the cops are going to help people like us. There is still a sense that being a homosexual is a dirty secret that is tolerated, but you're not really allowed to be a member of mainstream culture. That was, you know, that was part of the late 70s and early 80s still being widely repressed about yeah. gay people. It's just interesting to see it because that is very much a part of what they're playing here and why the characters can't get out of the problem. You couldn't make this movie today. That's a good thing because this reminds me of, of a movie we'll get to in a few months uh, called Partner. Oh, boy. Which is written by Francis Weber. I'm willing to accept that part of it is hopelessly dated because it was made in the 80s. And then part of it is just that it's lazy. Well, I do think as we talk about Weber, we're going to see that there's a cruelty to his comedy. You know, I think the toy and we'll get to the American version of the toy. But the toy is a, a fucked up movie. And the man who came up with the toy has some shit to work out. That, that movie doesn't come out until 82. So let's save the toy for later. I know, but, that, that but we'll, we'll get there. And it's, it's, it's awful. a reprehensible movie. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of awful and reprehensible, what's up next, Scott? The accidental follow-up to the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. If you wanted to combine two of the worst comedies of the early 80s and to underline the point, white men should stop playing Asian men. And this is a broad farce called Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Murder a false victim to swallow 10,000 goldfish. First time fish stop man. <laughs> Announcing the triumphant return of the world's greatest detective in an all-new comedy mystery, Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. If you ask me, sweetheart, is this one case that a baffle even a great Charlie Chan? Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, rated PG.
Here's the tagline for the film from the original poster, and I'm going to read it in the exact broken English in which it was written. Murderer who turned victim into human baked potato have real appetite for crime. Now, my response to that tagline is, fuck you. It's a bad tagline. First of all, that's not a description of the movie. The The murders they describe there, and I remember, God, I'm, this is so, I'm such a nerd. I would buy literally any movie novelization that I saw on the shelf. Anything. It didn't matter what it was. If it was a movie novelization, I would buy it. And I bought and read Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen before I saw the film. And I remember in the novelization, the murders were more extreme than they were in the final film. In the film, it is a fairly sedate off-camera thing for the most part. Let's set aside the conversation of whether or not it's a good idea to have a an old British dude play a Chinese-American. Uh, let's set that conversation aside because obviously it's a given. That's bullshit. And it's bullshit then. It's bullshit now. It shouldn't be done. Is the movie any good? God, no. Absolutely not. However, it is not as bad as fiendish plot of Dr. Fu. No, it does. In, in its defense, this actually does have a few cleverly mounted physical gags. It does have a couple of chuckles here and there just for pure energy of a Roddy McDowell. Believe it or not, he's trying harder. The, this is they're trying for farce. They at least understand that farce is where they're going. Yeah. Brian Keith as a curiously angry cop who's just always angry. Kind of funny, doesn't really, you know, add much to the movie, but he's trying. And of all people, Battlestar Galactica's Richard Hatch, who passed away just last month, rest in peace to a very good actor. Richard Hatch is, oddly enough, kind of funny in this movie. He and Michelle Pfeiffer have almost all of their scenes together. Michelle Pfeiffer's his American fiance. He's the Chinese-American grandson of Charlie Chan, who is determined to become a detective like his grandfather, even though his American grandmother, Lee Grant, really doesn't want him to. And he is a clumsy, bumbling goofball. So all of the big chaos in the film is supposed to be as he walks through the world, accidentally causing mayhem everywhere he goes, unaware that he's doing it. That's not a bad idea. I don't think Clive Donner's got a real feel for it. And I think he's try it's more frantic than it is funny. And you can see that, okay, this is what he wants to do. And this is what this scene, like when he's walking down the alley where they're selling every, all the, they have the open marketplace. And literally by the end of it, there's, there's glass shattering and there's pigs running around and people are on fire and there's things. Blo- it's insane. The reality doesn't sustain what's happening. It's it's that wacky British mentality of, you know, the, the more manic you make the mayhem, the funnier it is. When it goes bad, you know, like it does in this movie, or my perfect example is the opening credit sequence in Superman 3 by Richard Lester. It's like a lead balloon. It just blop. Uh, it's not quite as offensive as Dr. Fu Man Fiendish plot. I don't know why we're keep making these comparisons. Well, I think because they came out very close to one another and because the conversation at the time, there was a lot of outrage. And I think it was one of the first times that pop culture pushed back. Like Chinese Americans finally really said, you know what? Stop it. All right. Y- you had the 30s. Fucking knock it off now. And I think there was that feeling that those two movies represented the last gasp where studios kind of funded that. And then they went, oh, okay, sorry. And it kind of stopped here. You could see that like Peter Ustinov, who plays Charlie Chan in this one, and Peter Sellers, who played Fu Manchu, you could just see them sitting in an executive board meeting and being like, you know, I am the great Peter Ustinov slash Sellers, and this is who I want to play. And uh, I'll, I'll do this movie if you give me what I want. And it's just like these these relics. No offense to Peter Ustinov, who was a fucking great actor. Great. Well, and I'm guessing they cast him because he had done Murder on the Orient Express and he had played, uh, you know, that character. And clearly his thing was like Peter Sellers. Oh, I come from the English tradition of actors who I play every race and I play every creed and I play every kind of person. And, you know, Alec Guinness was the same way. There was a tradition that those guys came from, but it was over. Clearly, they didn't get the memo. And so these are the last films where they kind of were like still going, hey, remember when we did this? And we were like, yeah, don't do that, please. Drew, you have a film that you would like to mention to our listeners. Would you care to mention it? People say we haven't done a lot of foreign films. This is a foreign film that opened in America and and was actually a film that kind of broke through. And there was a lot of conversation about it. And there was a lot of scandal because of kind of the content of the movie. 
when I think of this movie, I always think of John Irving for some reason, the, the novelist. And it's because I read Setting Free the Bears and I saw this movie very close to each other. And they're both about sort of young Europeans. There's motorcycles. There's a lot of sex and freedom. And I've always got scenes from them confused back and forth. I'm speaking of, of the film, of course, Paul Verhoeven's Spetter. They all have a dream, a prize to win, a goal to reach. They all share the dream, each in his own way. You mentioned breaking away a little while ago. Imagine breaking away, but they're terrible people. (laughs) There you go. I don't think that's inaccurate. Um, awful people. There's some stuff in this movie that is so wrongheaded and so it, it almost feels like he's trying to get thrown out of the country so he can make Hollywood movies. That's what it seems like. I think he was working from the very beginning. He was working in the same tradition as guys like um, John Waters, where I think he wanted to see how outrageous he could be before people would go. All right, we get it. Tell me if I misinterpreted this film. But isn't a large portion of this film about a guy who gets raped by a man and then becomes gay? Yes, although that same character begins the movie basically beating up gay guys for money and robbing them exclusively, which to me suggests you're working some shit out. That's not really why you're beating them up. It's not for the money. But this is the same director who this last Christmas released L. Paul Verhoeven has never not been problematic, and his films continue to not give you any moral handhold. And I truly think Spetters, you know, if you go back and you look at Turkish Delight and Soldier of Orange, which came before this, they're films that they're challenging. They are not like this. They are not as in your face and almost gleefully pornographic. They're bratty movies and they're bratty about the way they're trying to offend you. And this this movie is over the top in how hard it's working to try to offend you. I think there's some funny stuff in it. I also think there's stuff in this that is just Verhoeven all over and everything I don't like about him. I think if you want to understand him, though, you have to see this movie because it's so clear who he was even before he came here. You know, if you're a fan of Starship Troopers and Robocop and God forbid Showgirls and and the stuff that Verhoeven has done in America, then it's definitely you won't be bored by Spatars, three young uh, motocross bikers and the girl who comes between them. Uh, literally, and all the uh, drugs and all the unseemly underbelly that, of course, comes part and parcel with the motocross underworld. My favorite story about this movie is that um, before this film, Steven Spielberg had taken a real fondness to Paul Verhoeven and was was really agitating for him to make his break into Hollywood and was telling everybody, you got to see Verhoeven, you got to see Verhoeven. And Soldier of Orange, I think, was the one that he was in particular in love with. So... As Lucas was looking for somebody for 1983's Return of the Jedi, and he was really casting a wide net, some of the filmmakers he talked about included David Cronenberg had been brought to his attention. David Lynch had famously come to his attention and been in the running for a while. And Steven Spielberg had suggested Paul Verhoeven and then saw Spetters and called Lucas and said, nope, never mind. I take it back. So... (laughs) Spetters cost him Return of the Jedi. Yeah, so yeah, way to go, man. Um, Scott, this next one's you all over, buddy. I'm here to introduce maybe one of the best Canadian horror films ever made. It was an early entry into the slasher pantheon, and it's pretty gruesome. It's known as My Bloody Valentine. In this town on Valentine's Day, everybody like Harry Warden's back in town. In the town of Valentine Bluffs, there are many ways to die. Take your pick. My bloody Valentine. I've always thought of this as a particularly ugly and mean little movie, and that's why it's good. Yeah. A lot of the Canadian genre films of the time were a bit softer, but then you see something like My Bloody Valentine, which is Kind of like, I want to say, like an episode of a dull soap opera combined with a really decent slasher movie. 
Yeah, and it's got a real sense of time and place. Like the mining town that this thing is shot in, shot in and set against, feels like a real place. And there's a grimy sort of put upon quality to the people that then makes the horror that is inflicted upon them extra wrong because their lives already suck. Stop it. The interesting thing about this one is that because the template hadn't already been stamped, it was okay for slasher movies to have, say, characters over the age of 25. That wasn't unusual. Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not um, just another teenagers have sex and that's bad movie. It's doing its own thing. It's telling its own story. And it did feel like we're going to start getting into movies now where the makeup becomes the point and where the makeup artists took front and center. And a lot of the reason these movies got made was just to show you a murder. I think this is that that moment where just the gore started to become more pronounced, even within they were still just telling stories, doing it as well as they could. It almost feels like this movie was like kind of like the fog where it was supposed to be a quaint kind of maybe murder mystery. And then they looked around and went, whoa, look at these horror movies that are all making real money. Let's uh, let's make some really gruesome stuff instead of just making it kind of another <laughs> potboiler. And My Bloody Valentine has some slow spots and it has some kind of weak performances. It's not a, you know, it's not a particularly great film. But as horror movies go, it, like you said, it feels of a place and of a time. It doesn't, it feels authentic. It doesn't yeah, it feel does like what it does it, really well. It I, wasn't I, shot I, on a soundstage. The mines are upsetting. The mines are really unpleasant locations. Yes. Uh, and of course, a lot of it is dated, being that it was a 1981 film. Uh, to students of the genre, I don't love it quite as much as I did when I was younger. But My Bloody Valentine holds up as one of the slasher great granddaddies. And now we're going to close out with a what we're going to call a Ralph Bakshi special. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start this with, with a little story. I was in Glendale with some friends, uh, guys who all worked in animation, and we went to a early screening of something. And we were told that they wouldn't say what the movie was until we got there. It was just coincidence that I went with the animators. The movie they showed us was Cool World, which was still basically pencils and was a total fucking disaster. There was no question this movie was unreleasable. It was horrifying. And afterwards, we walked across the street and we went and we sat down at a restaurant and it was a table full of us. We just started talking about the movie and we started talking about how insane it was and how it was like Ralph Bakshi just like had some kind of head trauma. Like I've never seen a movie in that bad a shape shown in front of an audience. I've seen rough films at test screenings. I've seen hundreds of test screenings. That was maybe the worst and in the worst condition. And we went on for a good 15, 20 minutes. And finally, as I'm talking, there's a sound of a chair being pushed back behind me. And then a big hand lands on my shoulder and right behind my ear, Ralph Bakshi says, listen, cocksucker. I'm here eating, and if I have to listen to another fucking word about my movie, I'm going to break your head. How about you shut the fuck up, let me finish, and then you can say whatever you want. And he went back and sat down, and our table shut the fuck up, because Ralph Bakshi's a scary dude in person. Having said that, I kind of like American Pop. Columbia Pictures invites you to a special movie preview. Ralph Bakshi, creator of Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings, now takes modern animation a quantum leap forward with a motion picture of incredible beauty and remarkable power. American Pop. The story of one family. Four generations in love with the greatest music of all time. Zalmi should have been a star. Benny could have been famous. Tony had a brush with success, but it was up to Pete to grab it, hold it, and make himself heard. Columbia Pictures presents American Pop, the state of the art in living animation. American Pop, rated R. Check your newspapers for the special movie preview near you. American Pop. I saw parts of it on HBO as a kid. Didn't get it. Kind of felt like I was watching, like, not just naked ladies, but, like, freaky porn I wasn't supposed to watch. I did not get American Pop. as I It's seedy. Yeah. But when I saw it again in my 20s, I think it popped up on the Encore channel, and I gladly gave it another shot. 
it's a beautiful movie. It really is fascinating. The entire idea is he wanted to tell the story of five generations of a Jewish American family going all the way from Europe, where they began, to America, where they have eventually assimilated and become part of pop culture. And pop culture is the entire point of the film. It's how music is a background as culture and generations and everything changes. And so he uses the music of America to when the last guy in the family becomes a rock star in the seventies and goes on the road. And so that's, that's the arc of this story. And there is, there's a real beauty to how he does it. And there's a lovely sense of Americana in terms of what he uses as sort of reference and how he does stuff. And there are scenes in this movie. I love, there are also places where you can feel back. She's artistic ambition kind of frustrate him. And part of that is money. Like he didn't have the money to pay for the music he wanted. So ultimately, five generations of this family builds to the triumphant moment where the last guy in line writes Night Moves by Bob Seeger, which maybe isn't the triumphant artistic note that you wanted to end that movie on, but it's what they could afford. And after this, he would follow it up with Hey, Good Looking, which is kind of an ugly movie, and Fire and Ice, which is kind of a cool movie. To me, American pop is Ralph Bakshi's like Casablanca. Well, it's definitely the moment he had the most studio resources behind him. They really wanted this to be this big thing. And I think if he ever if you ever hear him bitch about later in his career, how he couldn't get money and he couldn't get arrested and people wouldn't trust him anymore. He kind of earned that. Like he's one of those guys who he blew through a lot of other people's money and he was not the best bet, but he was given that one shot and this is it. And Watching how they treated him with support and watching what he was able to do artistically, it's maybe the most beautiful film to ever lean this heavily on rotoscoping. I love the scene in this movie where the guy's in World War II and he's in that bombed out building and he's playing the piano and the German is behind him and he he realizes the German is behind him and he's playing an American song at first. Then when the German is is there and starts to raise the gun, he stops and he starts playing a German song and that German stops because it kind of calls him home for a moment and he gets kind of weepy and there's that that moment where it connects them human wise and then he shoots the american once he finishes playing and it's it might be my favorite little mini movie out of everything back she ever directed i always thought growing up that ralph back was just like a a, to- a troublemaker a talented guy who just wanted to you know rail against the conventions and make controversial movies and but there's a real sincerity to american pop i mean it's still awash in his kind of cynicism and his world weary lens but there is still a a real earnest feeling about like the immigrant experience and the legitimately poignant way that you would evolve from a nobody to a huge somebody through through your art. I, I'll always like Ralph Bakshi for the weirdness of Wizards and, and, and the audacity of Fritz the Cat, but something about American Pop reminds me of like Avalon, like the Barry Levinson movie. Well, listen, next time out, we have one of the stars of The Love Boat being stalked by a killer. We have uh, Sally Fields playing sexy with Tommy Lee Jones, which I'm not sure I can take. We have a crazy Bill Cosby movie that represents one of the strangest moments in Walt Disney's history, which is especially odd because we also have Sam Neill playing something very similar next month. And yes, we even have Stanley Kubrick's very favorite movie. You'll see what that is when we come back next time for March of 1981. Guys, thank you very much. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We need that. Tell people about the show. Uh, Visit the Patreon page. Uh, support us through the Amazon Associates links on the site if you can. We are so excited to share these movies and the podcast with you from week to week. Scott? We will very soon have some fun content for you, exclusive audio content, including some interviews, some audio commentaries, some fun stuff, and that is just for subscribers. Uh, If you can't subscribe or you just don't want to because you don't love us, fine. We will still do plenty of awesome episodes. We will still give you the episodes for free. We like even you cheap bastards because I'm cheap bastard. So, Thank you very much, and we'll be back in two weeks.